you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Welcome back to another week of the Win-Win podcast. There are a few news in the Win-Win world that I'm very excited to share with you, the first being that I will be representing the podcast and Women in Innovation at an upcoming innovation conference called Innovators, spelled with an 8, on May 27th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, so that's 9 a.m. West Coast and 5 p.m. London Time, if I am correct. My session will be a session that is all about sharing the many insights I've learned from the amazing women that have come onto the podcast in the last eight months or so, and will be an Ask Me Anything format. So if you've ever had questions about the podcast or the women or diving deeper into anything that we've really discussed there, that'll be an awesome opportunity to engage with all of you and the other really cool guests that are going to be coming on. I'd love to see you there, and I have a few free tickets to give out as well as discounts. So if you're interested, email me at zoia at womenininnovation.co. You're always welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn and in other spaces too. I'm happy to share more about the podcast and the conference too, of course. On to today's episode, I had the opportunity to speak to the amazing Catherine Clark, who is the founding partner of Clark McDowell, a brand architecture innovation consultancy. She is so brilliant and so authentic and honest, which I'm sure you know makes for a much more in-depth and interesting conversation where you can learn a lot. If you've listened to the podcast from the beginning, you'd also know that I, amongst the many other cringy things that I've done, I used to ask the question, which was, how do you balance it all or how do you do it all? And You know, I I recognize that that's a question that men tend not to get. And the truth is, I'm really just so impressed by the ability of women like Catherine to be able to prioritize their family and their kids, but also to create these awesome ventures and innovations. And so while I don't want to minimize their work and their life's work to a balancing equation, I think there's a lot of benefit to understanding the mindset, the strategy, the approach that each woman takes. And That's very different from one woman to another and and something we talk about a lot on today's podcast. Catherine specifically has 25 years of experience in branding and innovation and her whole idea is about setting a vision for her clients and then creating strategic direction and execution on that across various programs or aspects of a company. So this could really mean rethinking a company portfolio, launching something entirely new, doing a repositioning, and lots of other really exciting ways to help brands show up and innovate better in the real world. Today, we touch on a lot of that and even dive into some case studies as well as talk about where Catherine is seeing the innovation consultancy landscape go. So obviously a lot there. So without further ado, I'm excited to have you here this episode. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, Zoya. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm really thrilled to be here and sharing my experience with a community of women that are all supporting each other and actively impacting the world through innovation. 
Absolutely. And you are one of those incredible women. So you are a co-founder of a brand architecture innovation consultancy that's been around for 21 plus years. Prior to that, you established a New York office of another agency only six years out of your undergraduate studies. So take me back to the days right out of college or around that time. What did you study? Were you already born entrepreneur or was the entrepreneurship born out of the exploration? Great question. I'm happy to share that. So I actually went to a a European business school that required us to go and do two years in in a, I actually grew up in France and I did two years in France and two years in the UK. Um, And I think that's the time when I actually did start to think a little bit like an entrepreneur. I started a company um, selling champagne in the UK. So it was French champagne selling in the UK. And really rebranding those bottles to be for corporate events and college balls and all of those things. And I think that's where my, without knowing it, that's where my love of branding started. And after, when I graduated, I got a a job in a large multinational energy company. And my first position was in their branding department. And at the time, this was the early 90s. Branding was very new um, and people were discovering the impact of identity and language in terms of the perceptions that it could have for people. So that's where I started. I learned a lot very quickly, but I had some ethical sort of dilemmas working for a big oil company. Um, So I ended up working for a small agency in London and was doing strategy work and account work uh, for that company. And then I think kind of began the um, the way that I innovated around my career. I moved to New York for love, um, although I didn't admit it at the time. Um, And my agency at the time said, why don't you open an office for us in the U.S.? Now, I was maybe 27 years old. I had no idea, uh, but I was very idealistic and thought, well, let me give it a go. And that's kind of how it all started. So I would say definitely entrepreneurial roots starting in college um, and taking that forward. It's interesting that you say that they, you know, kind of gave you this offer, especially as a woman and a woman not in today's landscape, you know, back then when you were going through that, why do you think that they believed in you or did you, were you strong enough to kind of ask for what you wanted? I think that was a combination. The uh, The agency I worked for was owned 50% by a woman and she actually was very supportive. I, I did have an incident at the agency once with a client sort of being a little bit harassing. And she was just so incredibly adamant about supporting me over the business that I think there was a kind of trust that built there. And I think she was a believer that women could do what they could do. Um, So I think that gave me a lot of confidence in terms of thinking, well, I can do this too. Um, So I would say just that stance she took in the situation that happened to me was quite meaningful, to be honest, uh, in giving me the confidence that we can stand up and just keep moving and establish ourselves. So you arrived in New York for love and also for this incredible opportunity to be under 30, running a satellite office of a company. Um, How does it go? So you kind of make it up as you go along and (laughs) fake it until you make it is really the, the key here. I will say I fell into innovation and that innovation was kind of my savior because the firm I worked for was really a branding firm. And so all the creative design work was done in the UK, which was highly impractical and not desirable for our clients here in the US. Innovation was just emerging. This was the late 90s. 
And what I found in innovation is I could be highly strategic, but also bring a creative lens that didn't necessarily rely on designers. So I started to meet new types of creatives here in New York and kind of got into a niche. And given the name of the firm I worked with, I was able to get into Unilever and became their primary partner for all innovation across Dove and their other personal care brands. So that gave me this incredible springboard very early on. And then through that exploration of creative resources, I met my actually my neighbor at the time, uh, Paul McDowell, and then we decided to go into business together. So we had the backing of this great client, Unilever, and this very organic relationship that started around our families and our homes and thought, hell, let's just do this. And it felt a little fearless. I guess there wasn't a lot to lose at the time. Um, I wasn't walking away from anything that was really established. And the world kind of felt a little bit like a, a canvas for us. That's so funny because I feel like me and my friends, as we think through our careers, and you know, I have friends that are very senior, friends that are just starting out. And the way we think about it tends to be, you know, if I do these three things, then I will apply to this job or I will jump ship from this job. Was there any sort of signs you were looking for or was it truly this let's do it mentality that you think got you to open this thing? I think, and this is kind of, you know, something that really affected my whole philosophy around innovation in general was this concept of win-win. So I know we're on a win-win podcast. I love that. (laughs) If you really think about what matters to you, not just in your career, but also in your personal life and your values, it's really important to have those foundations very clear in your head and they're different for everyone and that's the thing we all think we need to follow a certain career path but actually we all have different values and interests and strengths so if you can anchor those and then innovate around them to try and make it happen what mattered to me the most was to be close to my children I was pregnant when we opened the business so to me it was like how can we have an office that's less than a block away from my apartment so that was getting into partnership with my neighbor and opening a a storefront literally on 11th Street, I could overcome that because it allowed me to say, hey, I can do this close to my home, work really hard, but, you know, always be able to go home and breastfeed and do those kind of things. So I would say just this relentless pursuit of trying to make different things come together. I think that's the key because I, we are, we're kind of put into these tracks and these career paths that sometimes great against who we might be as individuals. So my advice would be, you know, really seek out what matters to you and see how all those things can maybe come together around your career. And you say that with such conviction that I absolutely believe it. But truth is, it it can be sometimes so much harder, especially with you saying, you know, you moved to New York for love. You chose a location of your office based on your family. Was there any pushback around that mentality or that self-belief in what you were doing? I think social pushback was definitely a thing. Um, How are you going to manage? How is this possible? But in your quest to sort of grow, trying to surround yourself with people who are optimistic and who can actually add value. I met incredible people just by talking to people about my dreams that would say, oh, I have to introduce you to this person or you know, I, you know, read this book or go into this place. And I think that really helped propel me was choosing people that had this optimistic can-do mentality and avoiding those. And there were plenty that would say, well, what happens if you fail? What happens if you run out of money? What happens if this? 
you know, this office looks like a junk store. What are you doing? <laughs> I think you kind of have to turn those voices down because ultimately innovation only happens when we have this degree of slightly overly optimistic view of life. You kind of have to believe it can be done. Um, so I realized I was very lucky and and I'm very appreciative of that. But in all fairness, we didn't have any money at all. I mean, mm-hmm. zero. And so we were living month to month, but we just believed we could do it. So I would say, if you really believe you can do something, surround yourself with people who are going to encourage you because their energy is critical to to giving you the courage to doing it. Right. And one of those people for you was your partner, Paul, who comes from a creative director background while your background is strategy driven. So when you were kind of building this thing out and discussing putting it together, were you looking for somebody inherently who would complement your skill set? Definitely. I would say um, the reason I got to business with Paul was we think completely differently to each other. (laughs) (laughs) And even after 20 years, you would think we might have had some way that we start to think the same but we still think very very differently and I think we kind of fell in love with each other's viewpoints he will tend to start sketching and thinking about execution and how we're going to get this done Um, whereas I tend to think more in big ideas and process and all of those things so if you can embrace this complete sort of polar opposite then you can start to find strength in in unity. Um, But that's really what brought us together was this recognition that we both solve similar problems and come at it from a very different angle. And so we wanted to create an organization where we could really put people in a room that thought differently. And so we, we ended up creating this very organic culture where we don't really have strategists thinking with strategists and creatives thinking with creatives. I mean, they do to a degree, Uh, But it's really more that confluence of different viewpoints that makes the magic. Um, And we've been really committed to that from from the first day. So the other thing I would say is maybe because I grew up feeling that there were a lot of gender issues in the workplace. And I started my career actually in Paris and London and, and in a big organization, a big energy company. And I felt that. And so it was very important for me to see that the women that I hired could fulfill their own potential. And so over the years, we've built up this incredible community of women within the within the agency, and we have an all-female leadership team. And so Paul has been, you know, very supportive of that and very welcoming of that. So that's another thing I would say is, you know, you can be in partnership with a man. There's not a problem with that. But ultimately, right. we both need to be feminists in the way that we think. Yeah, but that being said, along with his thinking differently as far as his execution-driven approach. Uh, He is also a man. So how would you say his leadership style differs and maybe is affected or not affected by his gender? That's a great question. But I would say he tends to always take a pretty empathetic view when, when dealing with any kind of issues or advice that we're giving our team members, but also kind of tries to to be objective, um, I guess, and back to that sort of thinking differently. You know, he thinks like a guy and he could be very open about that and say, hey, this is how I think. Um, and that can be really helpful to women as well, is, is right. hearing the perspective of, of a man in, in leadership, giving them their impressions and ideas and thoughts, but certainly never going against um, anybody's sort of fluidity. I think the other thing I would say is we were both parents at the same time. And so we had small children that were the same ages. They went to school together. And so this notion of 
being there for families uh, was a thread throughout. And for women, a lot of the time having children becomes a real barrier in their career. So having somebody who went through the same stages of raising a family as my neighbor in the same neighborhood really helped kind of reinforce a common view of we need to make sure we make it a place where women can feel that if they do want to have children, that we can make it possible for them here. Yeah, something I've I've learned through my own career, as well as talking to some amazing women on this podcast, is empathy and that psychological openness and safety is actually one of the factors that enables innovation. But to your point, there's such a huge execution aspect to innovation, too. So I want to talk a little bit about this notion of a brief. Brief can be that guiding principle or a map of outputs, which can bring a lot of clarity to a project or a strategy, especially one in innovation. But also in in my past life working in digital advertising, I've seen it be incredibly limiting or not flexible when what actually happens when you take on a project is that experimentation and challenge or just just life. So how do you and your team approach building out briefs or processes to enable innovation to happen at the same time? Back to those win-wins. If you're not very clear up front what you hope to get at the outset, in the end, in the, in the output, that will lead you to create ideas that don't necessarily deliver on everybody's objectives. And when that happens, those ideas aren't pushed through. People won't fight to actually make those little compromises like sustainability actually happen. So really spending time up front with the fundamentals, what is everybody trying to get out of it, including the consumer uh, or the, the recipient of the innovation, but also the organization. What what are their business goals? What are they trying to achieve? The other thing I would say, because we're a branding firm as well, we do think very much in through brand lens, What is it that this brand is going to uniquely be able to do in delivering this innovation is really important in the brief. You know, you can have a generic brief that we want to create a new product that does X, Y, and Z, um, but what is the point of view that you're going to bring? So I'll give you an example. Um, We do a lot of work with Starbucks, and recently they asked us to help them um, define a path for innovation for all their energy products. And really the first question we asked ourselves, well, first of all, what are you trying to get out of it? And all of those. But when it came to the brand, Starbucks doesn't really think of energy. If you thought about it as a brand, it's this kind of jolt of artificial ingredients, you know, Mm -hmm. like a, a monster or a Red Bull. So when we start to think about what the brand can bring, it can actually bring an ability to connect with lots of different types of target audiences who may have very different types of energy needs. Think of a young parent picking up their kids from school and wanting something maybe a little bit more authentic and maybe a little bit more premium, but simple and and healthy that they can look good with. Or maybe there's another group of people who might be students. They might be looking for a different type of energy. So part of the effort there was saying at Starbucks enters this, they can really reframe how we think of energy drinks and not being those kind of very artificial, jolty type of beverages and actually be things that you might be able to integrate in your life in the same way that you might integrate different types of coffee into your life. So once again, it's really being able to identify that unique thing that the brand is going to bring early on before you start ideating on, on solutions. We often see in innovation ideas being developed in absence of brand and then the brand being slapped on top of it as a kind of way to wrap it up. But actually, the values of the brand should be driving that innovation and the decisions that you're making. 
Right. And we've seen it go the complete opposite way with companies like Casper, where the brand was really the product itself, if you think about it. So I definitely have seen that play out on such different spectrums in the industry. But going back to Starbucks, I mean, they're such a large corporation and, you know, they're not going to be as agile as a company like yours, which has 20 or so people. So how do you consolidate those two cultures and those two approaches of innovation, the speed of innovation that's needed to enable it versus the large corporate culture and moving speed of a company like Starbucks? Where we see it be most successful is when they can really identify a small group of people that are going to be able to really put some passion into into the work. Um, Once again, that upfront definition of what are we trying to get out of it, getting advocates in very senior leadership very early on, showing them things that are maybe not fully baked, but kind of get them excited. You know, sometimes you can just render something quickly and just give people a glimpse. So they get excited because behind the scenes, those senior leaders can actually make things happen. So you have to get advocates um, from the get-go. If you go through the process of just going through stage gates, your sort of ability to actually produce something that gets launched gets really reduced. So I would say get advocates fast um, and try and encourage a very nimble, fluid process in the way that you work. I know they have a lot of very formal gates that you have to go through, but you don't, the, the work doesn't really limit itself to those gates. It's all the behind the scenes talents that need to happen. Once again, back to the win-wins, trying to align your innovation with maybe other broader agendas that are going on in the company. That really helps because suddenly you find a whole new bunch of advocates that are going to push it through. So that's, that's really been sort of helpful to, to success. I've seen a lot of people come from the startup space and say, you know, I came from the corporate world and I felt like I couldn't build this thing in the corporate world. It needed to be its own entity, whether that's, you know, because of the brand, because of other factors. But like you mentioned, a lot of what you do is work within uh, these larger corporations. So what have been some of the advantage and the exciting parts of working, building something new within something so large? So where we see a lot of success is when they have a little venture group, for example, Um, then you get that sort of excitement of being part of something small, but also the potential of having the scale, particularly if you're working on something that is going to be of benefit to our planet or to people. We've recently worked with Post Holdings, which is the holding company for Post Serial. So you're kind of imagining this big machine, if you like, but their venture group is only a handful of people. And their role is really to further the agenda on sustainability. And so we've been able to create a brand that will be coming out, I think, in the next four to six weeks. So I can't say too much about it, but it's climate positive. It's it's mainstream in appeal. So what's great there is that we're able to do something that literally is putting oxygen back into the air with every snack that they make, but we're doing it at scale. So we're going to be able to impact a lot of people very quickly. Um, Working with a small group like that, it's interesting. Sometimes there is a degree of training that happens with those teams because they may not have had the experience of being an entrepreneur themselves. And what's wonderful is when they come to it with an appetite for learning, So you can start to mold a little bit how we're going to work. And they find it very exciting because it's new and it's different. Um, And then what they're bringing is the ability to um, fit into something that's going to be able to produce things at scale. 
the biggest success we've seen is when those groups are open to learning new ways of doing things and not bringing with them some of the tools that they may have learned to to use when they were working on big, big brands like bases testing and all of those things that are necessary on a big brand, but really kill innovation if you're working in a startup world. Being somebody who owns an innovation and brand consultancy over the last 20 years, I'm sure you've seen an incredible amount of changes within the industry too. So what sort of innovation have you seen within the agency consultancy innovation space? When I first started innovation, it literally was the Wild West. So anything (laughs) you could bring that was a process that hadn't been done before was exciting to big companies. Like, oh my God, that's not going to be for, let's try it. So, and it was all about sort of breaking the processes that existed. I think with time, uh, we've seen this space really develop. And so there are lots of different types of innovation agency and there's a role for all of them. Um, Some agencies are really good at just coming into a client and just showing them lots of different things and, you know, bursting the doors open and to a degree, throwing things at the wall. Some agencies are really good at innovating around business models and all of those kind of more fundamental parts of innovation. I would say, you know, we have definitely erred more towards brand-centric innovation and very purposeful innovation. So trying to really maybe innovate in a narrower box gets to solutions that really solve specific problems. So I would say there's a wide variety of approaches and they all have merit. The encouragement for clients there is to really be sure what kind of experience they're looking for, because using an agency with a certain philosophy to do something that they're not made for is a bit of a recipe for disaster. So, you know, we sometimes inherit clients who've worked with really fabulous agencies, but weren't necessarily geared to doing the kind of work that they were looking for. So it's become a very specialized space, which is a good thing uh, because we need to innovate in kind of all parts of business at the moment. The pandemic has also been a real um, shakeup for the industry. I think we've seen a lot of new ideas come up just out of necessity. And that's been good. I think it's helped people see that we can do things differently. Right. And I think another thing that you touched on is is the importance of the people, right? At the end of the day, of course, we're all innovating technology, products, processes, you name it. But at the core of that is the innovators themselves. And you've mentioned that your, you know, your leadership team is all female and you do have a ton of uh, women in your company. How do you think that ended up happening and, and what advantage, if I'm allowed to say that, does it does it bring to the table? think it happened without me really deliberately going after it there were definitely a lot of women in the business so that's a start and then once you start to create a culture that starts to attract certain people kind of builds on itself the advantage I think it's created is really a platform for all these women to help each other in their own growth and for other women to join the company and feel that there's a path absolutely, whether it's with our agency or somewhere else, for them to get into leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we promote is this notion that there is no set way to run your career or to balance sort of, particularly for those who have children, balance having kids and working. We've had women who have really like actually doubled down on their career while they were having children Mm -hmm. and others who've gone part-time, others who've freelanced for us and then come back full-time later 
or situations where people have managed to kind of maybe shorten their hours a little bit. So we really kind of have been able to focus it around each individual. And the more you do that, the more each individual realizes that they do have a voice. And that's helped a lot of women feel that they can stay here. We have incredible longevity. We've had people work with us for 10 plus years in an industry where it's very fickle. And often there, there are women that you would think would want to hop from one job to the next. But what they've done is they've changed roles within the agencies, uh, within our agency, created a new team. Um, so we've tried to keep it very dynamic for them as well. Incredible. And I guess on the flip side of that, as far as working with clients and, and working externally, uh, what are some industries that you've seen that have the most disruption and where do you see the most opportunity for disruption? We work a lot with food and beverage companies, so I'll preface with that. I think there is a huge need for disruption is what I would say, mm. because our food system is killing our planet at the pace of knots. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there to innovate in ways that actually are good for human beings, better for animals and better for our planet. So I foresee an enormous amount of disruption in the food and beverage space the sooner we can um, see our clients find the benefit to them of creating things that seem more difficult and expensive, then we're going to start to see some real big shifts. Right. And we've already seen such a crazy shift in the last year. So definitely more, more there to come. So with that, I'd love to tie it all together and ask you our innovation question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry? one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? I love this question. Very, very <laughs> excited to take it. Um, thank you for asking me. Um, so in the next month, we, um, we have actually been innovating on Clark McDowell more heavily in the past year or two than we have in the last 20 years. And I think COVID accelerated that. So one of the big things is adapting to a hybrid model, which once again is really there to enhance our fulfillment in our work. So one of the things that we've seen is multitasking and Cal Newport actually is a great writer that's worth looking at for that. Multitasking all the times makes us feel very depleted. So everybody who's joined the agency is very passionate about the work. So how do we find a way to give them the space to really enjoy the work and really get into some deep thinking? And that means really rethinking both space and the way that we use our time. So I would say in the next month, I'm very excited about innovating around what our new hybrid model is going to look like. A year from now, uh, my wish is for this incredible leadership team that we have to be able to feel that they have accomplished things as a group that they wouldn't have accomplished maybe if they were alone in their career and that they can really use each other to accomplish great things. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to see. And then in 10 years, my hope is that I can look back and feel that I've had impact on people and not just myself, but maybe the people I've influenced or who worked with me have been able to encourage other women and men, by the way, um, mm -hmm. to really sort of promote equal and diverse way of being. Um, so whether it's within the workplace or the things that we produce for consumers to experience. Um, so that's kind of my, my hope for 10 years from now. So exciting to see and what an insightful and amazing conversation today, Catherine. It's been a real pleasure having you. Thank you so much.
And thank you, Zoya, for all that you do for Women in Innovation. It was an honor to be on, on this podcast with you. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.